You've heard the story, so let's just admit it. We don't like that story. Or at least, I don't like that story. If you listen carefully at all, it probably rubs a lot of us, most of us, if not all of us, the wrong way. Why? Because as a former professor of mine told me a long time ago, we identify with the little guy. We identify with the one talent guy, the one talent servant in this story. And as we go through this story, he's the one who gets blasted. Maybe it's because we often think we ourselves don't have a lot of talents, and so we identify with someone else who doesn't have a lot of talent. But beyond that, we tend to be people who root for the little guy. It's just how we are so often wired. We love it when the one student goes up against the whole university and wins. We love it when the one individual goes up against the whole IRS and wins. We love it when the unranked team beats the ranked team unless the ranked team is Penn State. We love it. Or I would put Duke in that category as well. It's one of the reasons people love March Madness. They always root for the little team to beat the powerhouse team. We love rooting for the little guy. And then we get to this story. And the little guy gets clobbered. And God seems to be saying, not only is that okay, that's a good thing. <laughs> we don't like this story if we go through it very carefully. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to invite you to open up with me. We're just going to be going through uh, Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. And I just invite you to have this story before you because we're really going to be looking at the story as a whole throughout our time together this morning. But just to put this in context a little bit, this is an easier one to find. It's in the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. And in particular, what I want us to notice is this is happening in chapter 25. There are only 28 chapters in all of Matthew. We are at chapter 25. Jesus is at the very end of his teaching. He is sharing some of the last things he's going to share with his disciples before he goes into the events of the final events, literally, of his life. And as we have noted before, it's important to pay attention to what somebody shares at the end. When they know that their time is running out and whatever is lifted up at that point, that's worth paying attention to. And so here is Jesus, and that's exactly what he's doing here this morning. And let's just recap the story a little bit of what's actually going on and what's actually happening. We know that there's a man, presumably a very wealthy man, who's getting ready to go on a journey, and he comes up to three of his servants. And he comes to the first one, and he gives them five talents. Now, you've probably heard the word talents before. We get our English word talent from what's being described here. It's used in financial terms in this particular story, but it really extends beyond that. It's not just your financial means. It's whatever gifts, abilities, talents you have. But in this case, what we understand is that the master is coming up to the first servant, and he says, here are five talents. To understand exactly what is being shared here, a talent, just one talent, was really the largest individual currency that could be given in ancient times. It is a lot of money, roughly 60 to 75 pounds of pure silver. And scholars even debate how much it's worth, but most of them say roughly 15 years worth of wages for one talent. And here the first servant is given five talents. That is a lot of money. That is a lot of wealth. Then he goes to a second servant, and he says, here are two 
talents. That's a whole lot of wealth that he's giving in that instance. And then he goes to a third servant and says, here's one talent. Now, even though it's only one talent compared to five, it's still a whole lot of money. Again, maybe as much as 15 years worth of wages. And so he comes and he gives all of this to them, and then the rich guy departs. And even that maybe makes us feel a little more sympathy for the little guy. Like, here's the rich landowner coming in, and then he, he leaves almost like an absentee landlord. Or maybe he comes in and he gives all of this wealth to them, and then he leaves and he goes off on a cruise. Uh, but they're just left to fend for themselves. And they're not given any guidelines. They're not told what to do with the money. They're not told any of those things. The guy just gives the money, and off he goes. And while he's gone, the three individuals have to figure out what do we do with the money that was given to us? We weren't given any guidelines. Number one, the guy with the five talents, he wheels, he deals, he doubles his money. Guy number two, he wheels, he deals, he doubles his money. That's all well and good. But when you stop and think about it, they are risking money that's not even theirs. They're taking chances with money that's not even theirs. They're blowing money on maybe harebrained schemes, and the money's not even theirs. But then the third guy, the third guy does the responsible, safe, right thing. The third guy does the thing that you and I would most likely do, which is he takes the money and he's so intent on not losing it that he goes and he buries it. Now, just to understand what's being shared in that, in that day, in that time, in that age, the way you most took care of money, the, the safest thing you could do, I mean, they had banking systems, but not like ours. The safest thing you could do was go and bury it in the ground somewhere. In fact, rabbis taught that if you were given money and you went and you buried it and somehow that money got lost, you could not be held liable if you had properly buried it. So if you did that, you, you were even getting yourself off the hook if you went and properly buried it. That's what this third guy does. And I say kudos to him because the money that he was given isn't even his. <clears throat> and so the last thing he wants to do is lose that money. He wants to make sure when the boss comes back, he can hand back every single penny of it and make sure that absolutely nothing's lost. So then the master does come back and he goes to guy number one. He says, hey, what'd you do? And he's like, oh, I wheeled and I dealed and I turned my five into 10. And the master's so happy. He's like, that's great. Share in your master's happiness. Doesn't ask for any back or anything at that point. He just says, awesome, enjoy it. Then he goes to guy number two. What happened with your money? Hey, I wheeled, I dealed, I doubled my money. Oh, that's great. You too, I want you also to share in your master's happiness. And then he goes to guy number three, and guy number three is like, Master, I know you're a hard man. I know that you like to reap where you have not sown. I know that you will squeeze blood even out of a stone, and that you are a harsh individual. And so you're going to be so proud of me, because you know what? I didn't risk your money at all. I didn't lose a penny at all. Here's every single penny back. Now, up until this point, we're probably tracking in the story. Okay, you know, but it's at this point, there is this major curve thrown into the story because it's at this point that the master looks at servant number three and he doesn't say, good job for keeping my money safe. He doesn't say, thank you for being the only one of the three that didn't take unnecessary risks. He didn't say, thank you for being the only one of the three to recognize I gave you this money and it wasn't yours to begin with, so you should take good care of it. 
He doesn't even say thanks for recognizing that I don't like losing money. He didn't say any of those things. He says, you wicked, lazy servant. And then if you read the very end of this passage, in verse 30, it says, throw this worthless servant into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Ouch. (laughs) We don't like this story. Here it is yet again. The rich get richer, the poor are getting shafted in this story, and the master seems to be lifting it up like, this is great. There's many other stories that Jesus tells that we like so much better. Hey, do y'all remember that time when everybody was sitting in church and they were passing the offering plate and people were putting great big cash bills in and they were writing big checks and they were putting in big commitment cards and then that one lady, she put in a quarter and Jesus says, she, she's the one that we want to honor. She gave more than all the rest of you. And we're like, yeah, go Jesus, fruit for the little person in this case. We love those stories. That's not what's happening here. What is going on? Why is it that the guy who's prudent and careful and responsible, I mean, aren't those good Christian values? Why is he being blasted? Why is he being put down? And all of this raises a pretty significant question for us. What kind of master is this? Who is this master that we are serving? (laughs) Is he some crazy, uh, extravagant, generous, wonderful person? Or is he some hard-hearted miser that we're examining here this morning? Which is it? It's funny, as you go through the story, we probably think of the master as hard-hearted and as a miser if and when we identify with the third servant. But notice it's only the opinion of the third servant we're given throughout this scripture. But if you back up a little, does the servant really look so miserly at the start of the parable itself? What happened? What we hear is at the very beginning, the master comes along and he gives an abundant amount of money to these servants. I mean, a lot of money. And we're not told they asked for it. We're not told that the master put any restrictions on it. We're not told that he had any expectations on it. We're just told he came and he gave abundantly and lavishly to these servants. That doesn't sound very (laughs) hard-hearted. And then the master goes away and he comes back. And what happens when he comes back? He goes to servant number one. Hey, tell me what happened with your money. The guy explains, like, I doubled my money. Now, it would have been good business sense for the master at that point to say, hey, that's great you doubled your money. As I recall, I gave you that gift of money to start with. Why don't you give me a little sliver back? Or you know what, I'll tell you what, let's go 50-50. Or even like, actually, I gave you the money, so I'm going to take 51%, I'll let you keep 49. That would have been good business sense. That would have made sense. That would have been fair. It's not what he does. He says, Share in my happiness. Share in my wealth. Specifically, come share in your master's happiness. The only reward that the master seems to be looking for is sharing in what he's already doing. He doesn't ask for any finances back. And then he comes to the second guy. Hey, what'd you do with your money? And he says, hey, I wheeled and I dealed and I doubled. Again, it would have made business sense for the master to say, well, don't forget who gave you the original gift by which you could double the money. That was me. Give me my portion back. He doesn't do that either. He says, keep it all. 
When the master comes back, if he's hard-hearted, we're expecting a reckoning, a judgment of sorts. We're expecting that he's going to come and give it to them. And you know what? He does give it to them. He gives them all of it to servants one and servants two. Does that sound very hard-hearted? He gives an abundant, lavish gift, lets them use it without telling them how to use it, and then when they've doubled their money, he doesn't ask for one penny back. Really? See that kind of mean person, mean master, or not? Is it really so wrong for this master? Is it really hard-hearted for him to expect that his servants be as reckless in their wheelings and dealings as he was in wheeling and dealing and sharing with them. Maybe he's not quite as hard-hearted as we first expect. But who is this master? Because he's not used to practicing the normal business practices that you and I are used to. Think of other business practice stories that Jesus shares. Remember there was one time where Jesus says a, a guy goes out and he was sowing in his field and he was sowing seed. Did the story say he went out and he dug a furrow really careful in a straight line and he took each seed and he measured them with a the measuring stick every six inches and he carefully put them in one by one by No! He says... The guy went and sowed wildly. He took seed and he slung it here and he slung it there and some of it landed on rocky soil and some of it landed on hard soil and some of it landed on thorny soil and some, yeah, landed in good places and grew. But not very practical. He just threw it and slung it everywhere, lavishly. Another time he says, oh, and let me tell you a story about a good shepherd. The good shepherd, the best shepherds are those who lay down their life for their sheep. Really? You're telling me that a, sheep, a shepherd is going to be out there and he's going to lay down his life for a $10 or even a $100 plus postage stamp for the sheep. You're telling me that makes good business sense? Are you kidding me? That's either a really dumb shepherd or an extravagant shepherd who would dare lay down his life for one sheep, let alone a bunch of sheep. Jesus doesn't share with us very often good, practical business sense. So what's going on here? Who is this master and what mission does he have us on? And part of what we discover and what Jesus is sharing here is he is describing the mission of his disciples in the kingdom of God. And what kind of mission are they on? They are on a mission to sow the love of Jesus wildly, extravagantly, everywhere wherever they are, and to do that not expecting in return, but to risk what they have, to leverage what they have, to throw out what they have as much as they can and see what God just might do with that. And servants one and servants two, they get that. They take what they've been given and they throw it out and they are lavish with it and God blesses it and God multiplies it and God uses it in all kinds of powerful ways. But servant number three takes what he's been given and just sits on it. Doesn't do a thing. Buries it. I wonder for how many of us God has given talents and abilities to lavishly use for the kingdom of God and you know what, Lord, I'm just going to play it safe. I'm going to sit on it and even hide it and then expect you to be pleased with what you've given me. 
See, the kingdom of God does involve risk. And that goes against our sensibilities in so many ways, but we see it right here in what's being given this morning, that followers of Jesus, they think differently than the rest of the culture. They do differently than the rest of the culture. They do things that from the cultural perspective may not make sense, might even be willing to risk for the sake of the kingdom beyond themselves. I am so grateful here at First Church because we literally live in a history of risk giving people. It is literally in our DNA. The very facility that we are in right now, when it was built, it was built right before the Depression. It did not make much sense at the time, build in town or build out of town. And people said, let's build in town because the needs are greater there. They build it and then, oh, by the way, let's pay off this facility while the Depression is going on. Who does that? A holy, risk-taking people. And God has honored that throughout the years. A number of years ago, First Church had a decision. Do we continue with just one service? Or because it's an opportunity to reach more people, do we offer multiple services? Or even bigger, we're pretty good at a traditional worship mindset. What would it look like to also offer a contemporary mindset? Things are rolling along pretty good here with the traditional thing. If we do contemporary, people might not like that. They might get upset from a practical standpoint. I don't know, but guess what First Church did? Took a holy risk, and God has honored that. A couple decades ago, people in this place looked across the street, and they began to dream and say, what would it look like if there was a large Christian life center there? that would allow ministries to grow and expand in ways we haven't seen before. And will that space ever be filled with people? Will it ever be used to its maximum potential? And some people are like, I don't think so. I don't think that would be wise or prudent to do that. And other people said, no, we think God is leading us in this direction. Let's do it. Even if it costs us millions of dollars to do, who does that? Holy, risk-taking people. And God has honored that throughout the years in powerful ways. And now we come together today and we say, what is ministry and what does church look like in a day and in an age when the world is changing so rapidly? Does it make sense to say, we're going to keep worshiping here and you know what? We're going to do everything we can to worship in our city and see new fresh expressions of faith emerge and to worship in homes and to worship at rugby fields and worship at swing dances and all kinds of... Who does those things? Two says we're going to worship and be a gathered people and a sent people at the exact same time, even if we don't see it happening much around us, even if we don't exactly know what it looks like. That could get really messy. Who's going to do that? Holy, risk-taking people do that. And why do we take such a risk? Here's why we take risks in the kingdom of God. Right now, in our culture, 60 to 80% of individuals on their own are not going to choose to walk through the doors of any church facility. Some will come if you invite them. Many are not going to come even if you do invite them. That's a reality. What do you do in this kind of world? How do you reach out and connect with people who are part of that 60 or 80%? Right now in our culture, 23% of our population considers them to not have any faith connection at all. That's, that's a percentage much higher today than it was even a short time ago. To put that in more concrete numbers, by the year 2050, there's expected to be 52 million individuals in our country with no faith connection at all. 
That is a staggering number of people. And if you're talking about people under the age of 30, the percentage goes up to almost half of those individuals who will not have a faith connection. Why are we going to risk and do whatever we can and lavish the love of God in extravagant, powerful, wonderful, wild ways? Because those numbers I just gave you are your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, your friends, your loved ones, who for whatever reason do not yet know the saving love found in Jesus Christ, who for whatever reason have not opened their hearts and said, Lord Jesus, I welcome you into my life. Come. And for those people that you can picture in your mind right now, people you love and you care about, they are why we risk. And if that's not enough, don't ever forget this. Jesus risked his all for you and me. Almighty God, God Father, said, I'm going to take a universal, literally, risk. They may not accept my son, but I'm going to send my one and only son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to live and to die for them that they might dare to open their hearts and welcome him into their lives. And I know not everyone's going to do that, but I love them, and I'm going to risk my all for them. And it's those kind of disciples, because we follow Jesus as the ultimate example that Jesus here is talking about to invite us into the kingdom of God. So church, how are you risking your talents Maybe more specifically, are you risking your talents? Every single one of us has gifts to use. Yes, financial, but lots of other things too. Are you leveraging them for the glory of God in any way beyond your own comfort zone? Are you saying, Lord, I don't know exactly where this is going to go, but I offer them to you and I trust you will do something significant with them. If you love kids, are you using that gift wildly and extravagantly? If you are administratively minded, are you offering that gift wildly and extravagantly to whoever might need it? If you have the gift of leadership, are you leading in a way to lead people into risk-taking endeavors of faith? If you are an entrepreneur, are you helping us creatively, lavishly, think about how to move forward in new and creative ways that still honor God in wonderful ways. If you are gifted financially, but actually all of us are, are you willing to leverage those resources for the kingdom of God wildly and extravagantly? If you know right now somebody in your life that you know I would love to talk with them, share with them, invite them somehow into love of Jesus, but we've just resisted, would you consider and pray about leveraging your love of Jesus to invite them into the love of Jesus? One of the things that I love about First Church is I get it. On the surface, we look pretty normal, I think, pretty together, as it were, with our plans and our strategizing and things. But you know what's really wonderful? If you start to dig underneath just a little bit, things start to get kind of messy. So right now, we, you've heard this, we talk about our disciples' journey. There are four steps of a process. That sounds very orderly and formational, right? And so we talk about being connected with God and God's people. We talk about discovering your gift and breaking your gift and using that gift in multiplying ways. On the surface, that looks pretty ordinary, but it leads to all kinds of wonderful things as people start to risk embracing and living into their faith. For example, 
Right now, we have one individual who's gone through this entire journey, or I should say is still in it, and for her, learning to multiply means this. She took a risk and connected with people at her middle school and with her middle school administration, and long story short, was able to create some space around their lunch gatherings for students during a normal school day where not only she can connect with those students and offer invitation around God and God's love and our Fuse youth experience here, but invite Josh to come and be with her there in that experience, and not knowing what was going to happen, literally on the very first time that they gathered just a few weeks ago, literally had dozens and dozens of students come and be present to offer invitation, connection, relationship. We don't know what's going to happen with that, but it was a risk for she didn't know if that was going to work, didn't know what the administration would think, didn't know what students would think, and yet here are these middle schoolers with this opportunity for us to connect with. Because she took a risk. Another individual right now felt led to move in this direction. She has a heart for broken individuals and forgotten individuals, and so she's been led to be in one of our local nursing homes, and literally she went in there with the purpose of how can I love and serve those, like especially those whose families don't come and love them or be with them or serve them. And so she had to take a risk, and she talked to the administration there, and would well, they think she was crazy to want to come in and visit? Not only did they not think she was crazy, they've basically given her all the credentials and teaching that she needs in that space to almost have free reign. And so now she is there connecting with individuals, building communities so that eventually they can share in a worship experience there with people who would never be able to come here, and most of them have been forgotten by our culture. She took a risk by putting herself out there, and God is using her in abundant and wonderful ways. See, this is not a business lesson Jesus is giving us today. It's not a tidy economic lesson for us this morning. Jesus comes and he says, I want you to sow wildly what I've given you. Abundantly, risk it for my sake, and I'll take it from there. Back in 1940 to 1949, there was an archbishop of Paris. His name was um, Cardinal Emmanuel Suhard. And he said that the disciples who followed Jesus Christ, he defined them as living mysteries. <laughs> you can't quite make sense of these people. Why? Because the only way their life can be defined is by the existence of God. You cannot explain who they are. You cannot explain what they do. You cannot explain why they operate outside of the existence of God. You just can't do it. I love that description when I think about us taking risks of faith in God, that we become living mysteries, that you can't explain what we're doing or how we're doing it or why we're doing it outside of the driving love of Jesus Christ. So church, I invite you today how is it you can leverage your talents, risking them for the glory of God? I don't like this parable. I'm better at planning and strategizing and crossing my T's and dotting my I's. I can't even fully tell you what all the parable means, but I can tell you this. Near the very end of his life, with one of the last things Jesus wanted us to remember, he said this, don't you dare make your plans your God. Don't you dare make all your strategies your God. You trust in me. I risked it all for you and I sent my son Jesus. And now I invite you to join with me wildly and abundantly. And my prayer is that when people see the people of First Church, they'll say something like, look at those adventurous, 
joy-filled, extravagant, lavish people. There's something different about them. What is it? They are living mysteries. And the example of Jesus Christ, risking extravagantly to share the love of Christ in our world. May we be those kind of people.